we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! This is Mark Krikorian, and welcome to this week's episode of Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. This week, we're going to be talking about something called the Central American Miners Program. And the way it fits into the broader border issue is that the Biden administration basically has a three-pronged approach to dealing with the border crisis, which they created by undoing Trump's successful policies. And none of the three things the Biden administration is doing is likely to really make any difference. But the three parts of what they're doing is first, bribing and threatening Mexico to do their job for them. In other words, to have Mexico crack heads in the southern part of of their country, their border with Guatemala, away from the TV cameras, you know, paying Mexico to do the job the Biden administration won't do. That'll have a little effect. Obama tried some of that. I don't think it's going to work. The second thing they're doing was in the news a lot, sending Vice President Harris to address root causes in Central America. Of course, the real root cause is in the White House of the border crisis. But even if this idea of promoting development and what have you were to work, it would take decades to make any difference. It's simply unrelated to the border crisis. The third prong of the Biden administration, desperate and I think doomed attempt to limit the surge at the border, is to fly people directly to the United States from Central America. Basically, fly over the border, skip the border, nobody can see them, and just distribute them to American communities directly. And the main vehicle for this is something called the Central American Miners Program. Miners as an underage, not coal miners. And this was something started by Obama. The Biden administration has restarted it and announced expansion, although it's not entirely clear what form it's going to take. And to talk about what this is, or what's the background of it, what are the various pieces of it, what this means, we have on the show today Nayla Rush, who is a senior researcher here at the center. PhD in migration studies, has immersed herself broadly in the refugee resettlement issue. And this actually kind of is sort of part of that, even though it's not purely refugee resettlement in all cases. And so she is one of the only people really writing about what this Central American Miners or CAM, C-A-M program means and what it's about and why it's important. And so, Nayla, Thanks for coming on. And um, if you could just start just basically, what is this? What was it when Obama started it? What's the story? The story is in 2014, we had the same surge at the border like we're having now. Perhaps now it's undoubtedly more of a crisis. But the crisis started in 2014 when unaccompanied miners from El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras started coming to the United States. 
So Obama administration had this idea to open up the in-country processing program so that they will avoid these risky journeys to the United States and not face danger. And that's how the program started. So it was called Central American Minors Refugee Slash Parole Program, which gave two protection parachutes, I call them, to these children from these countries. It gave either a refugee status and they were brought here as refugees. If they did not fit the refugee hat, they were paroled into the United States. I'll talk later about the difference between the two. So the idea was that parents who were here already in the United States, who were lawfully present in the United States, when we say lawfully present, we mean, I'm going to read here, because it's not about having a green card. It also means lawfully, not legally. It means having a permanent resident status, a temporary protected status, parole, deferred action, deferred enforced departure, or withdrawal of removal. And the important thing here is those are all things that basically we give to illegal aliens. Because if you have a green card or you're a citizen, you wouldn't need this CAM program because you would just be able to sponsor your kids through the regular system in the law. The categories you outlined are sort of quasi-legal, basically work permit categories we give to different groups of illegal aliens. Yes, and the idea was that the parents who came before illegally to the United States and were given some type of protection to be able to stay can now bring their children legally instead of having them cross illegally into the United States. So it's a family reunification program for illegal aliens is kind of what it amounts to. Exactly. It's a family reunification program, but it's given a different title. The program, again, was limited to these three countries, El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. We talk later, Biden might expand these countries and not limit them to only these three. The problem with this program in 2014 was not so many people applied. So not so many parents here petitioned to have their children come because most, despite these protections that they have as illegal aliens here, they still could not fit the eligible categories. And so they could not petition for their children. In other words, most of the parents were just regular illegal aliens without these work protections. You say it's simpler than me. That's all right. (laughs) You're on your third language, so don't worry about it. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) So not many people applied because the eligibility was relatively narrow. You still had to be some kind of legal status in order to use this program. That was from this side. From the other side, however, the children from these countries did not fit the refugee umbrella. And so by the United Nations' own definition, these children are not refugees. However, they could have been paroled, and that is why you had the parole protection. And the interesting part of it is that you apply for refugee status to begin with under this program. If you're not accepted as a refugee, automatically you are paroled. Automatically, your application goes, is directed towards parole. For listeners, parole is not like in the criminal sense where you serve your, you know, part of your sentence and you get parole. In the immigration context, parole means basically the president or the executive branch just gets to let people, foreigners, into the country who don't have any other, don't have a visa, don't have any other reason to be allowed in. And it's a power that Congress has given the president, but it's supposed to be very narrow for 
extremely important, you know, you live on the border and your appendix is bursting and you need immediate medical help, that kind of emergency thing. And what's happened over the years, and this is the way Biden and Obama have used it, is basically as kind of a blank check to let in any illegal alien they want. So in other words, what you're saying is the kids who weren't covered by persecution based on one of the treaty categories, we just let in anyway. Yeah. The other difference between refugee and parole is that refugee gives you a permanent status and access to a green card and a potential U.S. citizenship. A parole is supposed to be temporary. You get, I think, two years and work visas and stuff like that with, with all the benefits too. Right. But there's a difference. Of put the... Temporary in quotes, but yes, technically yeah. it's temporary. Yeah. I, you can't see me, but I did the sign. <laughs> As of 2016, 5,500 CAM applicants were processed. 30% went approved under the refugee program, 69% under parole. That means that 99% got in either way. So that was in 2014, not so much success. So what the Obama administration did, he expanded the program. So the children, the minors, need not be minors anymore. They could be 18 and above. They can be married. So they still have to be the sons or daughters of people here. They just don't have to be under 18 anymore. Yes. Also, another category was added. The caretaker of these children who are adults now, who could be adults now, can also accompany. Oh, like grandma back at home or something like that. Something that like that. Or, or anybody you can prove that they're taking care of these children right. will come and join the whole family. So that was in 2016. When the Trump administration took over, they started by ending the parole section and then they ended the whole program. There was a litigation in court for the parole program. As always. Yeah, and we're still accepting applications from that period of time. But the bottom line is not that many people were able to use it, and so it didn't have the desired effect at the border. Even, even in theory, the point was to divert the traffic, like you said, away from the trip through Mexico. There's dangers. It looks bad on TV as well. And just not many people used it. So it didn't meet its supposed objective. T totally right. And I do feel that's a personal opinion that in a way, people would rather just knock on the door, open the door and come in, especially if they know they will be allowed in, then apply for somebody and wait. Even if the process is kind of, there's fluidity there, but still, they'd rather have, you know, safe and the assurance that they can come. So I think this camp program is not going to succeed no matter how much you expand it. That's another bet that the Biden administration is doing, just like the Obama administration did, and I, I don't think it will work this time either. So Trump pulled the plug on it, and Biden came in and restarted it, and what's the status of that? What did he do initially, and then how did he expand it? So first of all, when Biden, uh, the administration, uh, took over in March, they announced they were going to process the application that were eligible and that were closed with the program in 2017. That was so they're the first in the phase. pipeline. Their applications continue. The second phase is to accept new applications, and we got to the second phase in June. So the Biden administration expanded further the eligibility conditions. So now, remember when we talked about the parents here who needed to be lawfully present? Well, all these categories that I read to you a while ago, 
on temporary protective status, etc., etc., he added two categories to that. One is pending asylum application. Anybody who has a pending asylum application can participate in this new CAM version 3, I call it, under the Biden administration. And anybody with a pending U visa application. Perhaps, Mark, you want to... Uh... Sure, yeah. U visa is supposed to be for crime victims. Again, it's illegal immigrants. It's a way of basically amnestying them. If they're a crime victim and the law enforcement certifies that they're important to the case against the criminals, and of course it's law enforcement agencies and sanctuary cities doing it, so it's actually being increasingly used as a way of just amnestying people. But before we started taping, you would looked up the number, and there was something like 270,000 backlogged applications for this U visa, but it's only for 10,000 people a year. And as I understand it, the administration has said that they're not going to even consider whether the application is legitimate or not. They're going to accept it, but not do anything until its turn comes, which could be years from now. And during all of those years, as you said, they have a pending application still. They would be able to bring their children here. And the interesting thing is, and also in the case of the asylum applicants, is that both of those are processes where you could be rejected. So you could bring your children and presumably grandma and brothers and sisters and whoever it is, the supposed caretakers, and if the kids are adults who are married and have their own kids, bring your grandchildren. And then if your asylum application is rejected, then what? Yeah. Realistically, obviously, everybody just stays. But anyway, go ahead. Depending asylum cases, I looked at the numbers. For the defensive cases, there's a difference between an affirmative asylum claim and a defensive asylum claim. Affirmative asylum claim, you come to the United States, you say, I want asylum, I'm persecuted, help me. The other defensive cases, uh, applications, are when you are in the United States and you're asked to be removed from the United States and then to be able to stay, you say, oh, but I can't go back because I might you know, right. be harmed wherever I go. And interestingly enough, the uh, affirmative asylum cases are much lower than the defensive course, ones yeah. because perhaps we can read into that if we want that the defensive ones are being used just to way to stay longer or forever in the United States. Anyway, so you have 420 for the defensive cases, 190,000 for the affirmative ones, which brings a total between the U visas and the pending asylum cases to some 880,000 cases. So all of those people, or at least those people who have kids back in Central America, would be able to take part in this essentially family reunification program. Yes. Now we're assuming that all these cases are from these countries, perhaps. Well, you no, have, yeah, yeah, they aren't obviously all. Aren't all, but, but, but the majority are, as we know. Another interesting expansion or modification that the Biden administration did to CAM now is that, remember, we had to have parents bringing their children and then minor children, and then they did not need to be minors anymore. And then they did not need to be children anymore. <laughs> well, now... The parents need not be parents anymore. How so? Because they can be caregivers too. In other words, they were caregivers of these children. So there's no opportunities for fraud there, of course. 
Anyway, so it's a real big expansion, and I'm sure the Biden administration is hoping that many will apply through this program and not just come and knock on the border wall. This processing is done, at least so far, has been done in Costa Rica, right? Or how does that work? No, the Costa Rica was for another program. Oh, okay. was for the PTA, which is the Protection Transfer Arrangement, which was as you wait for a refugee to be processed, through the resettlement, instead, if they can't wait in their own country, I they were transferred to Costa Rica and then brought here. This program wasn't successful either. These processes are in-country right. processes, of course, with the help of the United Nations Refugee Agency, UNHR, and IOM, the migration organization. So our embassies in Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala are the ones that do this work, or at least they're the ones that are running it. I think it goes through the international organization and NGOs, the refugee processing centers, resettlement agencies. This is supposedly a resettlement. And that's, that's interesting because we don't know yet, apart from these two expansions, what's going to really be the CAM version 3 under the Biden administration. He hasn't detailed the process yet. Are we going to Obama version number one, to Obama version number two, and now with the Biden version three? I looked at the U.S. Citizenship Act of 2021. Perhaps, Mark, you want to explain? Yeah, sure. That was the big amnesty bill, the kind of comprehensive immigration bill that the White House had put out. And they're not pushing it anymore because they know it's, you know, absurd. But it has a section on turning CAM this thing we're talking about now, into a statutory program in the law. Because right now it's just kind of made up. It's an executive branch thing. And you, Nayla, did a piece a while back on looking at what the president's bill lays out for CAM, not because that's actually what is going to happen, because obviously Congress would have to pass parts of that, but to give an indication of what it is that they want to do. And so what what did you find in that? So I found, remember we had the camp number one and two, you had refugee slash parole. Now we have three different programs. It's, again, it's a guideline that we have, that we're looking at. We have one, it's the Central American Refugee Program and Central American Family Reunification Parole Program. And the third one is Central American Minors Program. Remember that one out of the three is for minors only. Right. And one only is for refugees. The other are for non-refugees, which I think is kind of an admission, perhaps, that most of these children or now adult children are not really refugees and need different type of protection, whether through parole or under the Central American Minors Program, they would offer a special immigrant visa, what we call the SIV. Right. Which, again, just to stress... That's what the law, one of the provisions in this proposed bill that isn't law yet. So that's the first two things you talked about, where they laid out a Central American refugee program and then a Central American minors parole family reunification thing. Those two basically in some form are already being done because the president has authority to do that on his own. The third thing you were talking about is this special immigrant visa that they want to create, but they can't do that on their own. Congress would have to pass that specifically for Central American minors. I think it's realistic to think that the program is going to be expanded even further with the will of the Biden administration to really 
shut the border in a way that these children or families or adults are not coming every day. What kind of ways might they expand it? I mean, this is just speculation, obviously, but what could they do to make it, make more people able to take part in this basically executive immigration program that they just made up? Like we just said, first of all, you expand eligibility to not just the parents, but the caregivers here. Right, okay. Somebody needs to petition for you. However, the other two, you don't need even to have anybody here. Only one program, the other two programs, are you can just apply on your own and come under the the third version of CAMP. Another perhaps possible expansion is not to limit it anymore to national of El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala, but any other Central American country can now be added to the list. Or conceivably any country. I mean, in other words, none of this has any basis in law, so it's all being made up. And as we've been seeing in the news, and uh, Todd Benzman, our colleague, has written, there's people from all over the world now doing this. So, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if they just folded Haitians, for instance, into this program, and Venezuelans, and who knows what, people from Mauritania and Congo and Romania, for all we know. In other words, there's no reason they couldn't do that, because this is all just made up anyway. Well, remember that the limited success of the first two camps were that parents here did not even fit the eligibility, could not qualify even under the lawfully present. Right. So he expanded the Biden administration, expanded that to add the U visas and right. asylum, and expanded that to not just the parents, but the caregivers. He expanded, Biden expanded the people who could be petitioning for their children to come here. But You know, in a sense, and this is something our uh, colleague Art Arthur might have to weigh in on because I'm not sure what the answer is, but why even limit it to people with legal status? In other words, politically it would be explosive, but like I said, this is all just made up, so it seems plausible. I mean, they could just say, okay, even if you're an illegal alien, a regular illegal alien with no work permit, no temporary nothing, you could still petition to bring your children here. I mean, they're not doing that. And they haven't done it, and they probably won't, but they could. That's clearly something that, you know, we would have to keep in mind that they would potentially try to do. Going back to what I was saying, the other reason for the non-success of CAM was that they did not really fit the refugee umbrella. So they're expanding and giving different protection hats now, one only for refugee, they might. If we follow the U.S. Citizenship Act, of 2021 as a guideline of what might happen. And they give parole, obviously, because parole is the most successful one and everybody can get it and a special immigration visa. So they are giving more protection hats and they're allowing more people here to petition for more people there. And even the way they're running it now, in other words, if they just stick to what Obama, the way he expanded the program, and then Biden, you know, has expanded it some more, but basically is following that same track, it seems. Also, though, remember, Biden has now expanded access to asylum, eligibility for asylum, by saying that, not to get too much in the weeds on this, uh, on another issue, something called particular social group, one of the grounds for getting refugee status, now applies more broadly to people facing domestic violence or criminal activity. And that would enable more people to qualify for the refugee part of 
the you know refugee slash parole program. So I mean there are there are ways they've expanded it already and potentially ways they're going to expand this in the future. But my basic question, I mean, in a sense, if you put yourself in the head of the Biden administration, the point of this is to help reduce the number of people sneaking across the border, the number of either so-called unaccompanied minors or families bringing kids with them. It didn't work last time. Is there any reason to think it would make any difference this time? I think none. And what he's trying to do is not limit the number of people coming in. He's trying to limit the way these people are coming in. These people, if they are coming in illegally, he is designing, I would say, little tools for them, expanding, like you said, asylum definition and broadening eligibility so that they will be able to come here legally and say, hey, we want to have illegal aliens here. Right. Yeah. So essentially, they're trying to define away the illegal immigration problem by making them Legal, Legal. at least this portion of it. That's uh, that's what they're up to. I do not think, to answer you, Mark, I do not think this would work as it did not work before. Now it will work better, obviously, because they, they're really pushing for it. And I think the UNHCR and the processing centers really be working hard at expedited also processes that Biden well, administration and let's, also let's be clear, about. working better means more people will use it. It's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's working. But it's still not really likely to reduce the pressure reduce the people coming across the border illegally. Because people, again, would like would prefer to just come to the door than wait and have you tell them when to come. It's, yeah, because, it's frankly, a human nature. Yeah, I mean, if you, it may cost more, and you know, it is riskier. There's no question about it. But if you, once you get across the river and the Border Patrol guy waves at you and you go and takes your name or whatever it is, you're sure to be in. In other words, that's a guaranteed thing. Whereas applying for this, you have to wait for it. You may or may not get it. You know, the United States could change its policy conceivably while you're waiting, which happened to a bunch of people when the Trump administration took over. So I think you're right that people are still going to try to come across the border. And what we're seeing is that among the families, the adults bringing children with them caught at the border, some huge percentage, I think 30% now, this was May, are not from Central America or Mexico. They're from elsewhere. Haiti, Venezuela, Congo, India, Romania, what have you. And so I still think if the border crisis continues, I could see the Biden people they're coming up with some other name, you know, the, the miners program and take the Central American part off it altogether. Who knows what? The miners part isn't even on there anymore. I mean, that's just, that's deceptive at this point. It's Their bet is to deal with the issue there, whether through development money, addressing the root causes, processing, in-country processing, thinking that surges at the border will kind of decrease. My opinion, modestly, is that it won't, as long as you don't just address the border as a border that needs to be closed, people will still come in. Yeah, and if those who come in are let in and aren't removed. I mean, it's also, it's not even just the border. There's no deportations of people in the interior of the country. And when I say closed, I mean also subjectively closed, just physically, but also closed as in you will not be allowed to stay. Right, right, exactly. I would like to add something, uh, Mark, before we leave. What they are trying to do is say that these unaccompanied minors and now their adult caregivers are somehow refugees. Well, we know that they are not. And meanwhile, read refugees that are right. stuck and, and have given a refugee status in zones of war and chaos 
are not really being resettled. Nobody is, I don't know why nobody is talking about them anymore. I remember when the Trump administration did not sign the global United Nations Global Compact for Refugees. He was criticized when nobody is asking Biden to endorse it now that he can. So there's a kind of opportunity cost here. In other words, that the people we're focusing on bringing in people from Central America who aren't refugees, while there's real refugees that we're not letting in instead. And the the reason is geographic closeness and the uh, perhaps the the presence networks already here right, uh, yeah. came and the picture in the media, right, and political pressure because people from Central America have political spokesmen in a way that you know I don't know Rohingya or something do not. So anyway, all of Nayla's work it's a uh, Nayla N A Y L A and Rush last name is R U S H. All of her work is online at cis.org, along with everybody else's work. And when there's new developments, either in CAM or in other refugee areas, we'll have you back. Thank you, Nayla. Thank you. For my closing commentary, I wanted to talk a little bit about an important anniversary that happened this week. Seventy years ago, the United Nations Convention relating to the status of refugees was signed. The Refugee Convention is the short way they put it, but it's a treaty. The United States did not sign the original treaty because President Truman felt it infringed on American sovereignty. Nonetheless, though, the treaty set forth, created the framework for refugee and immigration law for even today. And what happened was that that original treaty, the Refugee Convention, only applied to Europe. It was a very limited thing about post-World War II and Soviet takeover of Eastern Europe. But in 1968, the United States signed what's called the Protocol on Refugees, the Refugee Protocol, which is basically the same. It's a treaty, and it applied the 1951 rules to the whole world rather than just Europe. So we signed in 1968, and the Senate ratified the 1951 rules, the ones that were set 70 years ago this week. And it is the framework that we operate under today. The Refugee Act of 1980, which is U.S. legislation, is based on this treaty, the 70-year-old Cold War, post-World War II treaty that we are still parties to and we are still bound to. As the Constitution says, a treaty is the law of the land. And after 70 years, we're long overdue to withdraw from this treaty. It's an anachronism, and it's being used by the opponents of national borders and national sovereignty as a tool, as a weapon, really, against the nation state itself. The way it works is this. There are two categories of refugees, if you will, and they're all co- they're covered. Both are covered under this treaty that we're stuck with. The first is regular refugee resettlement. Under U.S. law, that's what we call refugees, are people that the United States government affirmatively chooses who are living overseas and brings here. They may be in a refugee camp, but the point is we decide whether we're going to let them in or not. Now, I have a lot of problems with the way we do that, but it is up to us. We have control over it. It is a function of U.S. policy. But the other half of the refugee issue is asylum. 
Uh, a lot of countries refer to both of them as refugees. Uh, the Australia, for instance, calls them offshore refugee or onshore refugee. But in U.S. law, you have refugees, which are people we pick from overseas, and then asylum seekers, or if they win, they get, they're called asylees. And the difference is we don't pick who's coming here. The asylum seeker himself is the one who has control over it and decides. They're almost always illegal aliens who sneak across the border or maybe overstay a visa or arrive on a raft in Florida. That happens a lot too. And essentially they say, I'm here, whether you like it or not, without your consent, and you have to let me stay. And if you don't, I will use your own law and your own courts to sue you and make you let me stay. It's a, it's a significant restriction on our sovereignty. It doesn't mean we shouldn't have asylum, but we are bound by these United Nations rules, a treaty that we signed, to let in asylum seekers based on a yardstick, based on standards that we have no control over. Now, before the Cold War ended, this was not an important issue. The numbers of people were trivial in the years after the Senate ratified the Refugee Treaty. There are only like two or 3,000 asylum applicants a year, not even all the ones who got it. That's it. It was so small a matter that the restrictions on our sovereignty were really of little consequence. The thing is, with the end of the Cold War, with the dramatic reductions in the cost of travel and communications, and with massive population growth in the third world and the you know, collapse of many states there, asylum has become the big vulnerability in immigration law and border control. In other words, because of the way asylum has been structured through this United Nations Treaty, all the rest of our immigration law is potentially moot. It's kind of the exception, as it were, is swallowing the rule. And I argue in a piece at National Review this week that it's long past time for us to regain control over our borders. And the first step, it's not the solution, it's not sufficient, but the necessary first step is withdrawing from the United Nations Refugee Treaty, which anybody can do. You just give one-year notice. All treaties have some provision like that. Give one-year notice. We withdraw from it. And what that means is we can then change our Refugee Act, our domestic law, to you know restructure the way we do asylum, to make it less judge-heavy, less prone to litigation and much more streamlined and, maybe most importantly, much more based on what is in the national interest of the United States rather than what complies to UN so-called human rights law, which was promulgated a lifetime ago in a completely different circumstances in a different world. That's all for this week. This is Mark Krikorian from the Center for Immigration Studies. Thank you for listening to Parsing Immigration Policy, and we will join you next week with another episode. Thanks.